first time he had seen Castle Black with his own eyes, John had wondered why anyone would be so foolish as to build a castle without walls. How could it be defended? It can't. His uncle told him. That is the point. The Night's Watch is pledged to take no part in the quarrels of the realm. Yet over the centuries, certain lords' commander, more proud than wise, forgot their vows and near destroyed us all with their ambitions. Yeah, and that is how we begin this uh, episode of Game of Owns. There are two of your normal, usual, friendly, familiar faces on this episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, so Zach is is on his way en route uh, to Orlando for the convention later on this week, and... Eric and I are are doing something here that we don't normally do. We have only done it once before, actually, for the finale of season five. And that is sitting in the exact same room on the exact same couch uh, recording an episode. It's a little odd, to be honest with you. Be be jealous, everybody. I am very, very, very close to Micah physically right now. (laughs) But it's great to be here. Uh, As you mentioned, Zach is on his way to Orlando. We will be heading down there. Uh, soon enough, uh, on the same flight, and and yeah, we're we're just kicking it in Chicago, and we've read uh for this episode our John Snow and Bran Stark chapters. Yeah, we, we certainly hope that you have too, considering this is the on season. The last episode should have uh gotten everyone all prepared for the fact that we are reading through the books again. But uh, I gotta say these these chapters, we may say this often. But were these chapters not the coolest chapters that we've read so far? Literally the coolest because we're oh, I in didn't the even north. Try for that. They really were. This, uh, these chapters, John again and Bran were to me uh, prime examples of why the show is the show and the books are the books. There is so much additional detail, which we will be talking about, of course. Um, but even just like the quote that started on out of the episode, um, so much information that. Really, it's as relevant as as you choose to believe it, but it just really helps you understand why things are the way they are. Uh, the interior monologue of these characters questions things that the reader, he or herself, may be questioning or would never think to question. It's just like it's that much information, but he gives it to you in such a way that it's like really kind of unique and cool. We were we were talking about this earlier. How with the show, you get these moments. Uh, that in the book you, you read through them, but there's so much more context around them. You know, in in the show they might go by in a couple minutes, uh, you know, a couple seconds even. But you know, when you actually get to sit down and and read them and experience them, you get so much more of the story. And I think that to your point, these two chapters, you know, when I think about the John chapter, this was a chapter that was part of an entire episode. Literally, an entire episode was spent on this battle uh, at the wall. And and really, it's its its, its own entity, right, in this book, because you don't have Mance attacking from the right. north. exactly, exactly. Both of these chapters took place in the show, but outside of the chronology that they appeared in here. 
I mean, if, when I was, I mean, I'm just understanding, we just came from Dragonstone, where Stannis had not yet been informed of the threat uh, to the wall, had not yet presumably secured uh, funding from, from Bavos and brought his men all the way up to the wall, where they are in the show when the events are coming with the wildlings attacking from the south. So, and, and you know, regarding the brand chapter, we know this as well. This is, this is something completely different. They, they sort of... Uh, find a different way to to go through the wall, and and the encounter at the Dreadfort does happen. Um, not Dreadfort, Jesus. Nightfort. The, the the encounter at the Nightfort does happen, um, but in, in a different way. And and so it's absolutely just really really cool to to be with us on this. If you guys, if you're listening and you're not going through the books with us, I promise that these two chapters are as good as any to convince you. To definitely start reading with us. Well, we're just going to keep saying that every episode. That, yes. That these two chapters should convince you that you should be reading through with us as we go through the rest of A Storm of Swords, mm-hmm. chapter by chapter. So either start doing that or start skipping to like the seven minute mark of every podcast that we do, because you're just going to keep hearing that. <laughs> One of the other things with this John chapter, though, that I think you get a, a real sense of is is just the dire straits that the Night's Watch are in. You know the, the the folks from Molestown have have come up to the wall, uh, and and they're really the only hope that the Night's Watch have. Their, their forces are so depleted at this point, they're relying on really, you know, the worst of the worst to to help defend them. Uh, you know, we, we know that Maester Aemon has come up with this amazing idea uh, that they use scarecrows on top of the different parts of Castle Black yes, to r- fake like out straw men on the parapets. Yeah, you know? because they don't have the 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 bodies. To your point, um, with um, you know Stannis or, or at least Davos in the last chapter receiving that letter, they don't have the men and women in this case to to be able to defend the wall. They they, they are a depleted resource at this point and. You know, as as you go through this chapter and you read the descriptions of all these different types of people who are defending the wall, it, it's really a melting pot of individuals. N- not you know your your unsullied that Daenerys has out out east. You know th- these are people who have, and we see it in this chapter, right? We see what happens when the Thens finally do attack. The the people from Molestown turn around and and basically tuck their tail between their legs and start running away yeah, because they have no experience. They have no even on the on the tower where John is. You've got Deaf Dick Hollard, uh, who is you know he's actually not so bad. He knows what to do. He's 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 seen greasing up the mechanism of his of his bow beforehand and 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 that. But uh, but then you've also got Satin. The, the the green boy who's only been with the wall about six months and previously was lived and raised in in a brothel, uh, and and he's he's the he's John's main man he's John's wingman he's the one who's sort of back to back with him firing off uh, arrows and bolts into the this swarm what what eventually becomes the the swarm of the wildlings and dens. Right, and and John himself is banged up. You know, he's still recovering from the injury that he sustained. Uh, from Egret, and and you know this is really worst case scenario for the Night's Watch, uh, and just knowing the nature of the Thens, knowing that they are probably the worst of the wildlings that you could ask to attack the Wall, and yeah. you know it's interesting to me to see how they had a really good. <clears throat> excuse me, it's interesting to me to see 
how they had a really good contingency plan in place to be able to take them out. Um, right. You know, so. Yeah. I mean, John offers his, his, I guess, military insight is that he would have preferred to meet them, I guess, at Old Town or is it Molestown? Sorry, Molestown. shit. Molestown. His, his plan is to, you know, to sort of meet them at Molestown, meet them halfway. So as sort of a counter to the fact that Castle Black is so undefended and, and also indefensible, you really can't move back to the quote uh, that we're reading at the beginning of the chapter. Excuse me, at the beginning of the episode, there are no walls on Castle Black. And this presents a problem when defending the castle. And and we found out it's it's by design. Uh Uncle Benjamin has has left the that nugget of of truth, that fact, uh back in John's memory. Actually, we see a lot of during the battle. John, and we see this in the brand chapter too, kind of going back to what they've learned, either whether it was Theon talking about how cool it is to have arrows, uh, or uh, the sticking with the pointy end again that he himself, that John told Arya, all of this is coming back to light and it's, it plays really well as like a, um, just an insight into what could be the last night of this man's life. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that comes much later. <laughs> Yeah, it it comes a couple books later, and <laughs> and it's uh, it's obviously been. Uh, it, was it hard to read John again, knowing now that you can fully talk? I mean, I guess you already. Knew I could was- throw that question back to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I, I think that uh, this is a chapter, though. You know, going back to what we were talking about before, that is interesting to see how it was adapted to television because. You're taking a moment here where the wildlings and the thens are attacking the wall from the south. And in the show, you had Mance attacking from the north at the same time. So you had this amazing battle sequence uh, that was created back in season four. And it, it worked well. I mean, I, th- I think they did a great job. They dedicated the entire episode to it. Um, but you can see that now here in the book, John and the Night's Watch have been able really, to dispose of all those that have now attacked them from the south before having to turn around and deal with what's coming from the north. So there's there's going to be, at least it seems, a little bit of breathing room for them to kind of regroup and figure out what the battle plan is going to look like because John knows that this is just a small sampling of, of right. what's out there. Well, and, and I want to talk about sort of the recovery. You mentioned the breathing room um area that they they may now have in the books but when we're talking about recovering you're talking about several flights of stairs that have been burned and 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 they've only got uh even fewer men than they started with with this battle they don't even have what it is like half of 50 horses they've they're very 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 low staved here um and and how how could how much breathing room is it really when you're talking about even John's got an a, a wound in his leg he can barely move and walk if you're talking about rebuilding some of the structures that these these wildlings have have knocked down i mean that's i don't know how long it would take me and you to just build a, a, a Forty, a hundred feet of of stairs out of the, the thickest wood that we probably have to break, risk our necks going north of the wall to get to begin with. But they, there's just no way in my mind that you can even recover from this. It's they're using the the fortress, or not really. They're using the castle, what's left of the castle, uh, against you know these wildlings by burning half of what they've got already. Just you know, in terms of the structure, of course, that's the death of the Thens.
But really, at what cost uh, here? How can you recover from that? It seems, how are they going to be able to get up to the wall? I mean, they, they just all have to ride the, the cage, I guess. Yeah. It, what, and so now what you're dealing with is you better hope that the only people who are coming at you are coming at you from the north. Because if they're coming at you from the south, you're pretty much exposed. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the way they're able to deal with the Thens here. They draw them in and, uh, you know, basically dump oil on them and light them on fire. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's the way that uh, I read it. And, you know, a much different death for the Magner in uh, in the TV show. I think yeah. it's great that John is the one who's able to kill him. But uh, in this, he kind of just uh falls prey to what was a very good plan. I mean, <laughs> very good trap and really a last resort for them because, you know, they're trying to climb up these steps and, you know, if, if, if they don't have that plan in place, they're pretty much being chased up to a point where eventually they're going to be caught and it's going to be the end of the night's watch as we know it. And it, it just, it, it was amazing to me though, that you had, this ragtag group of people, right? You you have a couple of good, sound, competent individuals, but really, if you look at it on the whole, th- this is not a well-trained group of people. No, even the competent people were left behind while the rest of the watch went to the Fist of the First Men, went north of the wall and ventured off in search of Mance's army and whatever they were looking for up there. Uh, so, so these, these men, even, even like Def Dick Hollard has, uh, capability, he's, he's deaf. There's a chance where if he's not woken up, he could sleep through the whole battle. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that Eamon, uh, didn't, didn't have to, uh, I hope, I hope Eamon was able to get a little bit of rest. I know we didn't see him in this, in this, uh, part of this, uh, this battle, but, uh, all the same, you know, the, these guys who were left behind are still, what was already slim pickings in terms of, the the men that the realm itself has to offer, uh, the very slimmest of pickings of them uh, is and are what remains. And yet, you know, by the end of the chapter, it it is a a, a narrow but surefire victory. Right. But it doesn't come cheap by by any means. I mean, and it it's it's all due to these tactics, as you said, Micah. The the trap. Uh, doors and uh, the different traps that they have to sort of like the ambushes, the little the tricks with the pyrotechnics and barrels of flammable materials that they have to light up just to get this victory secured. But it, they manage to do it, but it's not easy. And I go back to sort of the scarecrows mounting the walls uh, because that's just a brilliant idea. But there's a quote uh, from the book here. They had more breeches and jerkins and tunics in the storerooms than they had had men to fill them, so why not stuff some with straw, drape a cloak around their shoulders, and set them to standing watches? Noi had placed them on every tower and in half the windows. Some were even clutching spears or had crossbows cocked under their arms. The hope was that the Thens would see them from afar and decide that Castle Black was too well defended to attack. That's your trump card. That's your the 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 that's your tactic is maybe they'll turn away or maybe just once an arrow will go to these fake men that would have instead gone to one of the live men. And we see this when John is defending the tower. Uh, an arrow hits the straw man next to him. The other thing here is that the fact that the Thans are attacking at night, right, is of huge benefit to this particular plan that Maester Aemon has put together. 
because chances are at some point, if it was in the daylight, they would see that these aren't actually real men. Yeah, they're kind of kind of slow moving for for real men uh, too. If if you were to really look at it, uh, if you were to get close enough, is the other thing to look at it, you could probably make out that these were not in fact men. But I mean, they have the the clothing and the and they're carrying weapons. It's very interesting. Well, and if you shoot them with five arrows and they don't they, fall they don't down, fall. but that's the point. That's the point to 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 waste the arrows. If even one arrow that would normally go into a living being goes into the straw man, and it turns out, uh, you know, John this whole time is in the back of his mind looking out for Egret. And and this is why this this chapter feels much like the episode did, feels like a love story. Um because it's it's sort of the culmination of uh the John and Egret relationship. Of course it has to end in her death, but earlier uh in the chapter, he is hoping that Egret won't show up at all. Uh he says to her, Egret, stay away. Go south and raid. Go hide in one of those round towers you liked so well. You'll find nothing here but death. And he's right. But, I mean, the battle breaks out eventually after an entire day of waiting. We're talking about the, the waiting being a very realistic uh, depiction on it. just plays on everybody's nerves. And they're not sure what's going to happen or when it's going to happen. Right. They're not sure when death will come. Um, well, even even John... Eat now. You don't know when you're going to get a chance to eat again. Go take some, a piss. Yeah, yeah, yeah it you know, might be your last chance right. to to piss. I mean, uh, Satin obviously solves that problem uh, when the when the horn blows. There, he just goes where he is. But uh, but John manages uh, to find some downtime to go bar the door uh, and and have his piss. But I mean, just just in talking about sort of the first time John spots Egret. Uh, during the battle is when an arrow has come and 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 sliced through the scarecrow next to him um and it was it was dead on and and this is something where I can perfectly see in my mind's eye while reading that uh you know he looks down and sees her, and she kind of in a minute later is gone after he fails to shoot her but I see it as being something where in the adaptation you could very easily have uh guessed that egret knew that what she was shooting was fake, but knew that he was up there right next to it and would see that and see her as kind of like, a, oh, when we last left each other, you know, it was not on good terms. Here's an arrow to show you that I'm coming for you type thing. So you could kind of read almost too much into it. You know, it's 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 not in the text that that is her getting his attention. But it, the fact that she nooses that arrow and it does get his attention is really is really cool. Right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fleeting moment where he sees you know this this person down below him and he references kiss by fire and yeah. how that's lucky and you know, it, it it does tie back in a way to the show and and you know, there isn't that moment where they lock eyes with each other and then Ollie let's let's not forget about Ollie, right? Uh, comes in and and ends up killing her uh but it it is similar to what you're saying where there's sort of that unspoken moment between them where you know th- there's that pause and and she easily could have let loose the arrow in the show much like she probably could have here chosen to hit him as opposed to hitting you know this this fake soldier so yeah uh but how about there is there's really no ollie there's really no clear cut this is the person that's responsible for killing egret we don't know well, you know what's really interesting is I, I while reading, um, actually it was the second time I was going through this chapter, 
there is a moment where Satin, the young boy, the young green boy next to John on the tower says, Ooh, I got one in the chest. Um, and of course, when we find Egrid, uh, it's, it's, she's got an arrow through her chest, but, uh, actually, so I liked this idea. I liked that this young boy who's next to John actually is the one who kills Egrid, but it's, it's actually not, um, not the case. The reason being is that we see, uh, Egrid, I think one more time, um, or something, something happens where, uh, well, she she is, is is elsewhere when he finds her, and and anyway, it wasn't the case. But I thought it would have been really cool if it turns out that Satin was in fact the one who got her, because he does get a wildling, an unknown wildling in the chest. Um, so I don't know if that was perhaps the exact wording that was, you know, they're like, hey, this is where we can tie this. In. You know, who who knows? Uh, in in terms of that, the invention of Ollie was clearly a a show thing. Um, but I like to see one and where sort of unused threads or unused or dialogue that's in the books somehow makes it in some other way, uh, into the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I don't know, we really got a true sense of, but with let's, you know, the, the, all the wildlings, you know, the, there are those that are, that are storming the camp that John clearly recognizes, but he doesn't he doesn't have that same indecision that we've seen in the past where he's not sure if he can actually kill them or 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 you know do harm to them there, there there's been points in the past where he's talked about these people that he's gotten to know like he's right. learned about their family he's learned about their history and so he's actually felt like he's made a connection with them and i know Tormund is obviously one of those people um, th- there are others, especially in that moment where he decides to flee and Ygritte ends up shooting him. But it, it, I, I didn't see as much of that indecision here um, when he's defending Castle Black. You know, there are people he recognizes. But he knows that in, unless he does his duty, that everybody at the wall is going to die. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 an easier decision to make. And the reason I referred to this chapter moments ago as a love story is because uh, John uh, falters when he tries to shoot Egret and then is so distracted by the fact that he has just faltered that he also misses his next two shots uh, at, at just random other wildlings. But I mean, to your point, when he does recognize, say like big Boyle, he says to himself, Oh, the arrow that just got him in the leg is going to give him something to bitch about. That's not his big Boyle. And he's, he's getting all, he's kind of using his knowledge of them to kind of write them off and say, Oh, now he's got, now he's going to go. And he, he witnesses these men being murdered, but ultimately it's, it's him or them. Yeah, and 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 that's what it comes down to. Uh, you know, he he was able to endear himself at least for a time to Mance and the rest of the wildlings that he was traveling with, uh, to make it to the other side of the wall. Uh, but now it, it's it's either put up or shut up, right? And 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 if he shuts up, he's going to die. So I mean, there's no real alternative. He has to act. He has to do what's in the best interest, and 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 based on the oath that he's taken. He needs to defend the realm, and and he, the wildlings are a clear threat. And we know that there are much bigger problems that are out there. He's going to come face to face with them sooner or later. But for right now, this group, the 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 group that 
for the most part, he traveled over the wall with is now attacking. And, you know, he, whether he feels any sort of connection to them or not, he needs to uh, do what's in his own best interest. And that is, um, you know, take them out. I mean, just seeing John, knowing that he's destined to become the next Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, seeing him give orders and, and in this situation, it's kind of a different situation than it was in the show, both that he is not commanding the entire remainder of the Watch in this united front. Uh, he's basically there There's to- no thorn. There's no thorn exactly giving either contrary orders or handling the men down below while he handles the men up top. John is very much in charge of satin and to Def Dick, a uh, little a little less because uh, Def Dick is, is a lot more competent. But, I mean, he's in charge of himself. And, you know, it, it's that's all he has to worry about, except it's kind of enough because there's men who come up the trap. They're, they're basically, I mean, he's got to use uh, long claw. To to kill him. He runs out of arrows. He's got to pull out Longclaw. He does that. He tells Satin to get the oil. They pour the oil down the men, and it's what a horrible way to die. You know, I'm glad that George did not take that opportunity to remark on the smell of burning flesh. I was completely expecting that to be something that that happened because he's certainly done it in the past. But, you know, in general, the, the visions of battle here were... Um, brutal, but not, I almost like not distasteful. It's just, it's a really gripping chapter where you're going through as John is, and you're seeing how each of his men, even before the battle breaks out, talking about him watching the different preparations that are happening, the men putting the barrels under the stairs or raking leaves. Rast, I think, is raking leaves under the stairs. Um, and John is is going through thinking about these men that he knows, the ones that don't like him, because, of course, he's gotten enough of that with the, the wildlings. He's just left the wildlings who don't like him, and now people like Rast also don't like him. Right, they think he's a, a turncloak, right? That's yeah, a- yeah, which is fair enough. All bastards, are, all men are bastards, are ba- all bastards are demons in their father's eyes, right? Um, but bastards to the realm have that bad reputation, and John, but John kind of deals with it. The the fun thing about sort of be, before the battle when he is looking at everybody is that it's describing who they are and what they were doing, but then George writes that they kind of wave at him, like certain ones are waving at him when he's when he's making eyes and it's funny because you're getting his point of view as he's analyzing, but if you think about it, yes, all these other people have just seen him look at them where he's into your monologuing. It's just right, really- and and some of them, these are people whose lives he's ultimately responsible for saving. Right yeah. when, when the chapter opens, Molestown is burning in the distance. Yeah, he saved these people. Most of them are being taken up to the top of the wall. Uh, you know, assuming the women and children, so that they are safe. A lot of the men are staying back to fight. Uh, and and you know, it's just to me. Look at look at the sequence of chapters, right? If 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 you take this back even 5 chapters prior to this, look at what's happened, right? You have the red wedding. Rob Catalan are dead. Mm-hmm. Arya takes an axe to the back of the head at the end of the, the following chapter. Yeah. You go to King's Landing and and of course everything that happens there, you get insight into the night of what happened when um Robert Baratheon eventually 
took the throne, right? Everything that Tywin did, the mountain did, um, in order to assume control. Um, and then, you know, you get, you go to Dragonstone and now here you are, you have a bat, the battle taking place at the wall, um, and John defending the wall. You have Egrit being killed. So, I mean, you lose potentially, if you don't know what happens to Arya, you lose four characters <laughs> in a very, major characters in a very, very short period of time. I mean, it, it. You know, Storm of Swords is exactly that. You know, it, it. It's. It's a bloodbath. Yeah. Well, I mean, the in the book is if the Red Wedding was if that's the part where the book heated up, it's still it has not cooled down yet. Even going north of the Wall, it's not cooling down. You've got this big battle, which ended up being an episode unto itself, like you said, Micah. So it's it's really exciting. I mean, I don't know how George does it in terms of play. It's just excellent planning. That's really all it amounts to is is really excellent planning and the ability to have one thing happen after the other without the other areas of the realm having known about it or being affected by it directly. You know, like this battle of the wall, when you're talking about life or life or death and what it stands for, the fact that this wall has kept uh, all of these creatures and this magic at bay for years, which plays into the brand chapter as well. Um, you know, and you're thinking about it, it feels like the entire world will be over if the men at the wall fail or fall. And at the same time, you think about somebody like Davos, what he's doing over in, uh, over on Dragonstone or whatever the Greyjoys are doing over on Pike. There's so many people who won't immediately be affected by this mm -hmm. because the world is so big and jumping around to seeing how King's Landing are reacting to the Red Wedding or Davos is reacting to news of the wall and all this stuff is really, again, just a unique, really cool uh, way of telling this story that's just so big in scope. Yeah, it, it's a great flow, right? Because from the Red Wedding, you have Arya and and what happens to her. That's that's an immediate fallout. Yeah. But then you know the next chapter, you go to Tyrion and you find out in King's Landing, Tywin gets the news, Tyrion gets the news, Joffrey gets the news as to what's taken place at the Twins. Then you go to Dragonstone. They found out what happened at the Red Wedding. But then also, to your point, you have Davos at the end of the chapter getting this letter uh, from Aemon, Maester Aemon, yeah. which then you move into the John chapter. And you know, you're know you seeing exactly why Maester Aemon wrote that letter. But yet you learn that he wrote it to four kings. Clearly, they have not received the news yet up north. <laughs> yeah. Even though I, it's closer. Uh, well, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't have a map in front of me, but you know yeah. that that Rob is dead. So it, you know the the amount of help that and 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 Balin's dead as well at this point, right? So we have two kings that are dead. Right. I don't know how much of that has made its way to the wall, but it's it's two less people who can be of help. Um. And and it's not just the kings that have been reached out to, right? There's there's a number of families, number yeah. of parts of the realm that have been listed in this chapter that uh, Maester Aemon and the Night's Watch have reached out to saying, look, we need help. We need to be able to defend the wall because we can't defend it. Once, they, once they're able to get through, you're next. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about reaching for help, Maester Aemon sent the ravens and they said, <clears throat> the message specifically was, wildlings at the gate, the realm in danger, send all the help you can to Castle Black. 
And it says, Even as far as Old Town and the Citadel the ravens flew, and a half a hundred mighty lords in their castles, the northern lords offered their best hope. So to them, Aemon sent two birds, to the Umbers and Boltons, to Castle Curran and Torren Square, Carhold and Deepwood Mott, to Bear Island, Old Castle, Widow's Watch, White Harbor, Barriston, the Rills. None of these men show up in time! <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's unlikely to think that all of these families of the North would... Uh, just flat out refuse uh, to help. But at the same time, we know that by the time the, the fire is reduced to mere embers and John climbs down to go find the grit's corpse, uh, you know, these men have not showed up. Um, and perhaps that's a big secret that you are keeping, Micah. Maybe these men, some of these men do get these letters and start showing up for the manse battle. Uh, you know, but it, it's... It's, well, we know who shows up for the manse battle. Well, it's, that didn't mean he has to be the only one. But yeah, I mean, it's the, I don't know what these, these men of the North, these Northern lords are thinking if they're not sending some of their own men to, to, to fight against these three very real threats. You've got the wildlings that are south of the wall that John was able to warn everybody about. You've got the wildlings north of the wall in Mance Raider, and you've got the whites. You've got the white walkers. And it's, it's shocking that the North, the the men whose interests this most most firmly lays in are not lending more of a hand mm-hmm. at this point in the books uh, to it, and it's shocking that Stannis is the one who ends up turning up uh, first and appears to be the only one. I thought it was a showism all this time because I thought there must be more nuance. There must be some of these northern lords who are like, okay, we're going to take even a hundred men. You're talking about these these castles that hold thousands and thousands, and the Castle Black only has like 26 horses and like maybe 50 guys. Yeah, but I, I think also a lot of these northern families were in battle with Rob. Some of them may have been at the Red Wedding. We we really no, that's true. don't know what kind of condition they're in at this point. But I agree. I, I definitely think there's more than just Stannis that could have helped. Uh, you know, the the Night's Watch with this particular situation. And, you know, we we end this chapter with Ygritte um, being found by John. Um, she's found and is able to see for the first time a proper castle, which was clearly important to her. No, yeah, it's a, it's a tender moment. I mean, it's funny how George, how that is, it turns out to be a catchphrase after all. <laughs> you know nothing, Jon Snow. Not just a showism. We've heard it in the books a couple times, but it is. It, it happens to be. But- I want to just jump in for a second because I saw a great meme. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, of of that line from Egret, uh-huh. and then there's a picture of Stannis underneath it with an asterisk that said, "New." You knew nothing, Jon Snow. Oh, <laughs> so to Stannis play- the grammar man is. Oh man, Th- this was a. A lot of action in this chapter. I feel like it's slowly built up, right? You you had a lot of waiting in the early part of the chapter. John, you know, talking with Satin, with with Def Dick, and really just playing a waiting game. And 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 then all of a sudden in the night, like thieves, you had the Thens attack and the rest of the wildlings that were with them. And uh it it was a really cool battle sequence, but in the end, uh, the the plan worked, and and they were able to overcome this attack. But you know, when you think about it, there weren't really 
that many people that that attacked the wall here from the south. It wasn't a huge contingent. You well, know, there were ta- seventy thens and probably sixty or seventy or a hundred wildlings. But is uh, thinking about that, you know, like it just even in terms of what we've seen in other battles that have taken oh. place in this series, that's nothing. No, no, no. I mean, the odds were still against the men of the if watch. If a thousand men marched from the south of the wall yeah. against the Night's Watch, forget it. Uh, yeah. And well, and the, But there are those moments where you think sheer numbers are going to be the end of the men, um, particularly right before the Thens die. You're thinking, oh, God, John tells uh, Satan to start, he says, what gods do you pray to? Start praying to them. I mean, we do think, I think for a moment, at least I did when reading that, that all was lost. If I didn't know any better, um, you know, re- really expecting. So I, I think there was enough um, up in the airness about, about the, the outcome. It's just, if it, if it weren't for the fact that they had to burn their own stairwell down, stairway down there, there and the part of the wall came around with it and crushed to death, maybe 60 or 70 thens, then it would have been a different situation because those thens were plowing through those, uh, village people and the not village people, village folk, and uh, now I'm hearing music. Um, you know, men of the night's watch. Why I'm going up? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, but uh, and and now you're. It's very. Mansa's coming from the north. They're very fortunate he's coming from the north because if he was coming from the south, yeah, it, it would be a whole different ball game. You know, they have they have the positioning to be able to now utilize the wall to their advantage. You know, they can use the fact that the wall is holding Mance and his army on the other side and knowing that there's only one way, as we saw on the show, that the wildlings can come through the wall and that is at that gate. Now, of course, if you were a member of the Night's Watch, there is another way that you can get through the wall. I don't know. There could be multiple, uh, you know, I portals of sorts. Don't even know, man. Which, which we find out about uh, in this Brand chapter. Uh, we haven't seen Brand in, in in quite some time. When was the last time we saw Brand? It was. It would have been uh, in the Gift, right? They were in the Gift, yep. and uh, Brand kind of goes through that. Uh, well, it's when when he he sees uh, John. Yeah, he sees John, and uh, t- I believe what summer summer is wounded, and and basically John escapes from regret. So it's it's back it's back then. John and Bran, who are now paired together chapter wise back to back, we last heard from them when they last saw each other, pretty much, or didn't see each other. Bran saw John, um, but this this Bran chapter, you mentioned the the portal and. To be honest, Micah, I don't even need know. I don't know where to go from from off of that because that is something that is or was completely unexpected uh, to me, and I I just don't know what to say about a a, a tree, a, a weirwood tree. To be fair, but it 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 uh, talks and is a passageway to. It felt like the Whomping Willow. If I'm being honest. But it uh, reminded me of you. You ever see the show Legends of the Hidden Temple? Yes, and it has the, yes, the guy, the stone guy. Yeah, or or from uh, Night at the Museum when you have the the head from Easter Island. That- yes, exactly. Hello. Yeah. Um. Some something like that. I mean, it's password. <laughs> Capit Draconis. But what a cool password, man! It, it's it's the vow. 
for the Night's Watch, but we're we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, let's let's go back to the beginning. One of the greatest things about this chapter in particular is the presence, uh, prominence of Old Man and all of her stories, because it turns out that Mira, Jojen, Hodor, and Bran have all arrived at what is the Night Fort. Uh, Yes, I said that right. Finally, thank God I didn't say Dreadfort. The Night Fort, and the Night Fort is uh, this storied castle which has long been deserted. It's one of the isn't the first castle on the wall. Um, I believe it was said it's it's definitely one of the oldest. It's among the oldest, and it is the biggest, the largest. In fact, it was the first because they built it too big. They couldn't maintain it, and eventually they they built elsewhere. But but the Night Fort is so old and mysterious and mystical and we're in this place and Bran's imagination it's downtime there's nobody else there so Bran's imagination is allowed to run wild and we as readers are allowed to run with it you're hearing about uh the same creepy crawler characters that we've heard about before like uh the rat chef or what was what was his name this isn't ratatouille so I mean. the, rat, <laughs> the rat the rat cook well yeah. We'll talk about him in a sec, but the one that really comes to mind is the Night's King. You know, this this is a character that has been talked about a lot this past season, and we all think that just going straight to the meat of the no, yeah, why why bullshit around it? (laughs) He was credited in that uh, episode this season, that release, right? Yeah, and and he was the the one staring down John at the end of the episode, and. I think that uh, you know to, to learn more about him, to learn his history, the fact that he f- fell in love with this woman uh, beyond the wall. We don't really know who she was, right? She could have been an apparition, could have not really existed until it was too late or something even worse. You know, I, I feel like we should just, rather than summarize it, we should just read it directly from the horse's mouth, directly from George R. R. Martin here. Um, so, let's say, let's, uh, we'll begin this way. The gathering gloom put Bran in mind of another of Old Nan's stories, the tale of the Night's King. He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall, a woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon, and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her, and caught her, and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice, and when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort, and proclaimed her a queen, and himself her king. And with strange sorceries he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled. Night's King and his corpse queen. Interesting that she's now a corpse. Yeah. Uh, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Joramun of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Night's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. Now, regarding this amazing, awesome story, so much comes to mind, so much from lore comes to mind so much from what we're already familiar with things like practices like sacrificing to the others um kind of question at what point this man was or stopped being mortal uh he lay with what we are uh 
presuming to be one of the first white walkers or uh, in some form of death that had been reanimated, he lay with this woman and created almost something entirely new and something entirely different. And and even though the records have been uh, erased, and this is where we're at at this part in the book, knowing that that creature is called that in, in the show, that this is uh, the basically the, the man, the creature foremost behind Hard Home, the events at Hard Home that happened in season five, you can't help but think that it's clearly the same guy and also that whatever happened to the Night's King uh, thousands and thousands of years ago, 990, 980 Lord's Commander ago, uh, the Night's King somehow survived and just walked off, uh, waltzed off into the wasteful wilderness of the North, never to be heard from again. Perhaps that's why the records were scattered, because he won that battle. I mean, who's to say? Yeah, it, it, it's it's really great to have Old Nan's story uh, so important to what's going on, knowing that she hasn't been around for quite some time. And yet, uh, you know, here Bran is in the night fort, recalling a story that she told him long ago. And and we know that it, it does have some sort of relevance. Now, the story itself may not completely be true, but clearly there's something to it. You know, it, it there's there's something to be said there's some importance to the stories that she tells him uh, in these books. You know, I, I don't think they're just mentioned casually. And, and I think if we were to go back and kind of analyze all the different stories she's told him, now some of them might just be you know, your old wives' tales or right, right. you know your spook stories, you know, to keep you up at night. Um, but I, I even like the part where she said to Bran. Some say he was a Bolton. Of course he would be a Bolton, right? <laughs> Knowing what we know about Roos and Ramsey. Yeah, what a jerk. Uh, some Bolton. say a Magner out of Skagos. Uh, some say Umber, Flint, or Nori. Some would have you think he was a Woodfoot from them who ruled Bear Island before the Ironmen came. But he never was. He was a Stark. You know, and I mean, to think about that, you know, we don't we don't know. We don't have the context. He very well could have been. He could have been anybody who so, just... So that means that if John has stark blood in him at all uh then the knight's king would be his great 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 uncle at some point yeah something like that looking down looking down to the generations would have been like hey you're my blood um it's it's hard to tell at what point fact has changed and become fiction or, or any of that mythology because old Nan herself, though she is quite old, uh, is not old enough to have witnessed this for herself. And, you know, she basically does turn the story into a a horror show when she tells Bran that maybe the Night's King, because he was a Stark, maybe he slept in the same bed. Maybe his name was Brandon. Maybe you too could become this creepy Night's King. And then she always pinched him on the nose when she told him that. And it's just like, okay, that's that's clearly getting to the point where we're supposed to question it. The rest of her story, completely, as far as I'm concerned, all of it happened exactly the way she told it. But we know that's not how myths work, and and there's some embellishments throughout the years, but... When Brandon and the group are, are at the night fort, he, he has that knowledge, though, that so many stories 
uh, have taken place here. The the uh, my particular favorite of the seventy nine Sentinels uh, as well. That 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 story is told in this chapter, and it's it's wonderful. It's it's just so cool um, to read about, to learn about the fact that these the Night Fort is so old that all of these stories could have happened, and each one that did happen happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So many men ago, so many generations ago. It's it's crazy to to be in this place where and, and then and be a person like Bran who is raised on on well enough on these stories and he can just think back to them mm-hmm. uh and, and kinda use that to inform his fear. Mm-hmm. Right. And and we need to remember that he is a very young kid and so he's certainly impressionable and as he's traveling around the night fort and then when he finally tries to go to sleep that evening of course all of the different stories that he's been told throughout the course of his childhood are going to come flooding back to him and remember he is a child of the north so all these stories have that much more impact on him right you know perhaps they tell different types of stories in King's Landing or in Dorne or in other parts of Westeros but Bran grew up learning about the Night Fort and all these dreaded tales that came along with it. And now, if you were his age and you're lying there trying to fall asleep... And there's a drip, drip, drip that you can't place. Right. Of course you're going to think that there's some big rat that's coming to get you uh, out of the uh, well. You know, you don't know. And and, and so... uh, I give him the benefit of the doubt here. I mean, I know Jojen and Mira are a little bit older, but, you know, I will give him credit, though, because he hasn't really show his fear that much. No, no, he doesn't. I mean, at, at the point where he's he is most afraid, um, he bears it alone because everybody else is still asleep. Uh, at, at first, anyway, until uh, he, he ends up, he does wake Mira. But, I mean, this this fear that he has... He feels like, and he says it a couple times in this chapter. I'm, I'm almost a man, you know, now, and and I shouldn't be afraid of these things. Mm-hmm. He kind of really comes to face his fear. Um, what are you saying? Yeah, and you know, you had you had mentioned the the seventy nine sentinels. I know we talked about uh, the Night's King a little bit, and there was a a short reference to the Rat Cook as he becomes known, um, but. It it says here that the Nightford had figured in some of Old Nan's scariest stories. It was here that Night's King had reigned before his name was wiped from the memory of man. This was where the Rat Cook had served the Andal King his prince and bacon pie, where the seventy nine Sentinels stood their watch, where brave young Danny Flint had been raped and murdered. This was the castle where King Sherrod had called down his curse on the Andals of old, where the Prentice boys had faced the thing that came in the night where blind Simeon star eyes had seen the hellhounds fighting. Mad Axe had once walked these yards and climbed these towers, butchering his brothers in the dark. Nothing good happens here. <laughs> no, nothing good happens here. Mad Axe is walking down Fury Road, butchering his brothers. I mean, the stairs, I, I love the steps, and of course when they first arrive, they, Mira wants to scout out, wants to climb the steps. The steps are made of ice, everywhere else they're wood. Here they're ice, and because of the age, because of the weather, the steps are barely steps anymore, but 
uh, still are just enough for Mira to climb, and then she goes up and comes down saying she has seen the haunted forest. And that, that doesn't really help them, except they're one step further away from finding a way to cross. The whole reason they're here is because Jojen had one of his dreams, and his green dreams are never wrong, he assures them. Well, they they call him grandfather, right? Jokingly at times in the in in the series, and and I think he's got that old miserly way about him. Yeah. And you mentioned Mira climbing up to the top of the wall. She mentions that she sees was it an eagle? Uh, I, I forget which bird it was, but it reminded me back to um the uh, the skin changer or L. You know, oh. is that who she actually sees or, or you know, him having already um, gone into the body of, of his bird? Uh, we know that his bird tries to attack John. Um, so, you know, I, th- I thought it was a way of just kind of tying the different stories together. Um, but, yeah, I, I, Jojen, follow what he says because clearly he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um or not. <laughs> or not. But I, I, I wanted to go back. Uh, I mentioned the 79 Sentinels. And, and I, there's the, – okay, those guys are cool. The, the Knights, Knights King's story is is obviously probably he's, – he's the coolest dude. He's the most relevant dude to our experience here. But the 79 Sentinels and the thing that comes in the night – uh, in particular, scares scared me the most while watching the Night's King. I'm like, oh, I can put a face to him now. It's less scary. But the thing that comes in the night, Bran's story, our old man's story, involved basically the men of old who were who were manning the Night Fort, uh, describing this creature and what they described to their Lord Commander or to their uh, man in charge was different for every single person. I'm thinking this is some kind of additional magic yet. There's this creature who has some sort of a bloodlust, obviously comes from the North because all the crazy monsters do and has an ability where everybody who views it views something different. It's terrifying. It's just a terrifying concept. It's you're just playing with the inner fears that we have as children uh, somehow of something that cannot be described it has no description mm-hmm. um but is coming for you and dragging the by chain the, it's it's former victims uh, over a hundred years since they were last seen it's it's really good imagery mm-hmm. um, right yeah and of course um that's what scares brand so much is he's trying to fall asleep uh and we know that it ends up not being any real threat at all but Again, I go back to the fact that this is a really young kid who is traveling with a bunch of other really young kids, and Hodor, uh, you know, I mean, he's <laughs> you know he's he's good for defensive purposes, but he's not really in a state, um, you know, that that's of a fully grown, able-bodied adult, um, and so you know the the other story that gets mentioned in this chapter is that of the rat cook. Right. And they bring up yet again the idea of guest rights. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a theme that we're going to continue to hear about it. We heard a lot about it in the show after the Red Wedding, but now we see it coming up yet again uh, in in the books and that you will be cursed or your family will be cursed if you take any sort of terrible action against those that are staying 
uh, within your home right. that, that you've is given safe that the gods cannot forgive, mm-hmm. no matter what the gods cannot forgive that. And I I really love that it appears to be building towards something. But I know even in the show that hasn't come to a head. Um, the guest right the fact that Walder Frey is cursed that Bolton presumably as well for his part in the Red Wedding is also cursed. They just can't die soon enough for my liking. Well, they're both still alive as far as we know. Yeah. So at least in the show. But um the the backstory of the uh seventy nine <clears throat> let me find that. The backstory of the seventy nine uh Sentinels basically comes from the reason the reason that this is is probably my favorite story. Is because these were men who are currently uh, supposedly, according to the legend or the story, entombed within the wall, like at the top of the wall, pretty much right where Mira just was. These men were placed into these, um, you know, chasms or whatever, and 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 shut in and locked in to, to freeze in the, in the ice, and are now. I mean, we know what the Night's King is all about. We know that the danger from the north is in reanimating corpses. You've got these these men who. Forgive the pawn have a bone to pick with uh, the men of the Night's Watch and the realm because all they wanted to do was leave and they were punished and killed because they deserted and, and weren't allowed to do that. Now you've got almost an army of men just built built into the wall. They're in the wall waiting to rise again, essentially. It's it's actually terrifying that this Lord uh, Reisner, um, Risewell, that this Lord Risewell who entombed all these guys here could not have possibly known then uh, the, and that these men have basically it's just like providing your own downfall like this army could be used against those men if they if only they were ever to be reanimated mm-hmm. um, it's it's kind of scary and, and kind of cool how we can look at history in that way to look at history and go you know, this old story and be like, oh, that wasn't smart because thousands of years later, you're going to have these dead rising from the grave and it's not going to be a good idea to have them fully clad in armor, you know, waiting to to get their revenge. So I'm just still impressed that uh, Mira was able to climb the wall. I I, I give her a lot of credit for that. But yeah, all these stories. You're you're left with wondering what level of truth could they possibly have? And I think because it's at the wall, because we know or have a general idea of what lies beyond it, some of these stories could be true. Not all of them, not no. not the entirety of the story, but parts of them could be true. And I think you know, just taking it back to what we initially spoke about with um the Knights King, we know at least if we're to believe the show, that there is some truth to that. Now, is that exactly how his story came about? Is that how he came to be? We don't know. And we may never find out unless we learn more about it later on down the line. Mm -hmm. But for the purposes of the television show, we're meant to believe that this character does exist. And And the lore is not altogether unfamiliar. There are tales of... Uh, demons of of demons disguising themselves as females. They, they think the term is succubus. They take a man's soul. They seduce and steal your soul. And just the line in Old Nan's story, or the line that Bran reads, that when he gave her his seed, he also gave her his soul. It, it seems familiar. Um, but in the context of 
this woman was dead or was death or, you know, something like that. You're talking about men interacting with this world, this world that is so rich with magic that you can interact with it directly uh, as in uh, that way and have sex with it or, or do something that is uh, against nature or not a good idea. You can you see these men uh, failing and, and, and doing it. And that, that's right up there with everything that Stannis does to try and succeed. He's looking into the flames. He's sacrificing his uh, family, let's just say, to be both compatible with the book and the uh, latest bit of the show. But it's these are desperate uh, measures that are being taken because they live in a world where there's magic. And it is, and then Bran doesn't know what's going to come out of the well uh, when he is sure that something is down there and that Hodor should not have thrown that bit of slate because he's sure that something woke up. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't know, but it could be any one of these terrifying creatures that are going through Bran's mind, uh, or it could be none of them. It could be something even worse. Yeah, it could be Sam. <laughs> but it turns out that it's Samuel Tarly, and he's caught in a net. Well, he he wasn't caught in a net when he was coming up the <laughs> stairs. I mean, that was after the fact. And he gets a little poke and prod from Mira. Uh, I think this was done well in the show. I think that there is obviously a big difference in the sense of what happens after the fact. Um, no, number one is we get a name finally for this character that – Sam and Gilly met. Old hands. Um, we weren't given it uh, at, at the end of that uh, last chapter, but we have a character now that ties Sam, Gilly, Bran, Jojen, Mira, Hodor all together. Um, and, you know, did Cold Hands find Sam and Gilly for the sheer purpose of being able to get them to Bran, to get Bran to him, to get Bran to wherever he needs to go? I mean, it's really intriguing. But, I mean, George R. R. Martin's, forgive the expression, such a cock tease, because we get this story of of them with cold hands. They don't know really what he's made of. His, his hands are ice cold, but his eyes are not blue. He rides an elk, just like the green man did, but no, he's not green in color, as Jojen asks. And you don't know what this guy is all about, but... From the point of view chapter, the last Sam chapter was them escaping and finding cold hands. And this point of view chapter, which is Bran's, Sam, they're coming from their departure from from cold hands. So even though they have this story to tell, we haven't seen it for ourselves what cold hands is all about. And apparently there's something about cold hands that means he can't cross the wall. And that is, again, yet another example of how awesome this world is where... You finally, it looks like there's hope for someone who is uh, contaminated or someone to live a life as a partial sort of uh, white walker. They don't, they don't use their tongues, it said, but he does, you know, there's some sort of half partial quality to him, but the magic of the wall prevents him from crossing it. So he's still not because he's, I guess he's enough like those creatures that the wall is meant to keep out, that he is unable to go and grab Bran for himself. Right, and and clearly he wants Bran, because Sam says as much, or Gilly says as much in the chapter. The but, one, right? He says something about the one. Are you the one? Yeah, and, and, and clearly there's more to Cold Hands than we know, because he brings 
Sam and Gilly to this point in the wall? How do you know it even existed? How did he know that Sam would be able to get through here? Did he come through here at some point himself? You know, he he looks as if he's a member of the Night's Watch. Right, he dresses like one, yeah. But he's just this being that nobody really can make much sense of. Well, the black the black gate, as as they call it, is a really elegant solution to the problem that the gate that is more visible and more commonly known is sealed shut and was ever since the night fort was first abandoned. This solution to have uh, sort of an underground passage, it's not a river, it's not a cave system like we've seen or heard about in the past uh, as something that could exist under the wall. This is... Uh, tied in as well to the werewoods because the entrance, as it turns out, the Black Gate's not a gate. It's uh, an opening in a tree that that has some sort of sentience. But it really goes back to all the stories we've heard of uh, the First Men and the First Men's alliance with uh, the Children of the Forest or, or the the people who worshipped... Well, yeah, the children worshipped the werewood trees. This goes back to some of the first alliances that were made between these creatures, the fact that their magic helped build the wall to begin with, uh, and, and that there would be such a, a passageway that exists, which is in the form of a werewood tree, really, I think, brings it all kind of full circle, really shows how again, just shows the vast history of this place. The fact that it's a werewood uh, when, you know, eventually there was a falling out between the children and the men and the wall. And yet somehow the vow that the Night's Watch men all take um, still is, you know, an acceptable answer to, to, to gain passage through it. That someone, only a member of the, the Night's Watch can get through it. It's that that magic, that barrier is still the same for how many centuries now? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really quite cool. Yeah, I thought it was really cool that underneath the wall, you have a passage that you're only able to get through if you're a member of the Night's Watch because, I mean, anybody could probably say the words, but I think it would only open for somebody who's a true brother. Well, could you get it Could you get it exactly right, I think, if you weren't a member of the Night's Watch? Because there's a lot of tenets there in the right order. Yeah. Maybe they're just hedging their bets like, oh, yeah, the only person who could know it is the guy who remembered it to say it. But well, that almost would be good enough because you can't see a, 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 a wildling uh, – you know, taking the time to learn that vow. They kill crows. They don't, you know, sort of get any further than that. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I I thought that uh, this was a great, you know, chapter, a lot of history, a lot of lore that you get uh, through Bran from Old Man. uh, And, you know the the interaction that you, where you finally have characters that have been so integral to the story for such a long period of time finally crossing paths with each other because you know Sam and Bran let, let's focus on those two you know you have John's closest friend and ally in the Night's Watch meeting his brother and this is something that Bran doesn't want to find its way back to John. He doesn't want John to know that uh, he is traveling beyond the wall. And Sam promises him 
right? I mean, Sam agrees that he can keep a secret. Yeah. But just the fact that you have these two characters talking with each other, and then the moment when Mira gets mistaken for Summer, and then Summer finds his way in. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all a big But Summer recognizes Ghost, at least in part, you know, by, by going up and I think it's licking Sam's hand, yeah, right? Yeah. And and so there's immediate connection between Sam and another one apparently, of the Stark Direwolves. Apparently that hand hasn't been anywhere else. The last thing it touched was that dog, <laughs> that other that other wolf. But, uh, you know, the, the, the trustworthiness of, of Sam, he's he's got one of those faces that you just trust, right? Or perhaps it's that he's so bumbling and was complaining about being poked or stabbed even when it only hit his mail. Mira was very surprised. She's like, you've got mail on under there. It didn't come close to injuring you. And he's like, it still hurt, though. Uh, it's just perhaps it's that Bran even asked him, are you sure you're a member of the Night's Watch? It's like it, it's almost uh, too silly to be true. Um, and, and that levity there sort of allows for the exchange to happen. Bran makes the decision to trust. Uh, and, and it turns out, you know, what, what he learns, uh, it's, it's an information exchange that benefits them both because Sam learns that John is still alive. And that's something where up to that point, Sam, Sam feared that he had not escaped mm-hmm. after, after their last Right, encounter. right. Bran relays to, uh, to Sam that he in fact saw him, mm-hmm. um, when, uh, they were, you know, in the gift. So I think that, again, just... It's for such a brief moment that you have these characters interacting with each other and then they go their separate ways, right? Bran and his crew go beyond the wall with cold hands. Sam and Gilly are going to make their way back to Castle Black. So, but but for that period of time, because so often you don't get it. I mean, we saw it this season, you know, having characters like Tyrion and Daenerys interact with each other. But here you have, you know, Bran, John's brother, and Sam, John's best friend, in the night for talking to each other, yeah, you know, and, and Sam really allowing for safe passage for Bran. You know, if, if Sam's not there, Bran, I, I don't know. Does he, is he able to continue along? Yeah. Do they, do they get another dream that tells them where, where the werewood is, you know, where the gate is? It's right. But to your point earlier there, who says they're even able to get through? Right. If they don't, if they don't know the way that it works. Um, I mean, Jojen would have to do some fancy green dreaming uh, in order to be able to, you know, basically get get their passage. But that's that's why I like this design of you can call it fate. You can call it fate or what you will that these dreams are happening, that they're pointing these characters in this direction. But I like that in the books, there's a character in Cold Hands who not only is awesome because he's this hybrid character, as I just mentioned, but is is actually an acting force. He carries Sam to go get Bran and is presumably waiting for them on the other side of the of, of the um, gate, if you'll, for lack of a better word, for want of a better word. And he will presumably take uh, Bran and and company to uh, the location uh, where Bran was in the show, I hope. And, and that's, it's cool to have more agents, uh, for this power working up North, because I think it lends a little bit more credibility, mm-hmm. uh, to that power. The fact that in the show it's, you know, one child of the forest or, 
uh, maybe a few others are just in that tree. It's it's not as exciting as having your very own elk riding ranger go go out from your base of operations and go collect the guy whose destiny it is to to come and meet you. So I, I don't know. Cold Hands is a really cool book only thing that I'm intrigued as all of hell to to learn more about. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really know what else to say, but you know, with the show, you know that they end up going to Craster's, but there's no cold hands there. Now you have cold hands and you know that they're not going to Craster's because that was just made for TV. <laughs> so you're going to get your own separate adventure with them traveling with this individual for the foreseeable future. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things beyond the wall. We know that and we'll see where they go and, and, and what they do, but I'm looking forward to, uh, to brand story continuing. Well, something that happened in the show also happens in this chapter, but so much more richly is it detailed uh, exactly what happens. Of course, I'm talking about brand warging into Hodor. Um, this is something where it happened in the previous brand chapter was where it happened in the show. The lightning storm trying to get Hodor to stop shouting. This time it's because Bran is scared and can tell that somebody's coming up the well. Wargs into Hodor basically for protection. Um, the way it's written in the book is... Excuse me. The way it's written in the book is really incomparable. Um, I'm going to just read it here. Uh, he slipped his skin and reached for Hodor. It was not like sliding into summer. That was so easy now that Bran hardly thought about it. This was harder, like trying to pull a left boot onto your right foot. It fit all wrong, and the boot was scared, too. The boot didn't know what was happening. The boot was pushing the foot away. He tasted vomit in the back of Hodor's throat, and that was almost enough to make him flee. Instead, he squirmed and shoved, sat up, gathered his legs under him, his huge, strong legs, and rose. I'm standing, he took a step. I'm walking. It was such a strange feeling that he almost fell. He could feel, he could see himself on the cold stone floor, a little broken thing, but he wasn't broken now. He grabbed Hodor's longsword. The breathing was as loud as a blacksmith's bellows. I mean, you're talking about he's reaching into empty space uh, and and finding a, a brainwave, a pattern that he's completely unfamiliar with and penetrating it, and Hodor is pushing back. This is everything that was mimed completely, faithfully, and extremely well by Christian Nairn in the show, where you get that look afterwards of, I've just been violated. We talked about that when we were watching the show. This is a a violation. You can't just take someone's free will this way. Bran does it out of necessity, both in the show and and in this chapter in the books. But just getting that description was extremely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's two completely different things. I mean, Christian did a great job of it in the show, but reading it and getting an even deeper sense of to use your word violation, yeah. um, but also a real sense of uncertainty from Bran, you know, like putting the, what do you say? The, your, your right shoe on your left foot, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, that remember how young Bran is. I'm assuming over time, he's going to learn how to do things better and better, not just working into summer, but in this case, working into Hodor and possibly working in to other things and other people. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a process. It's something that's going to take time, but 
I think, you know, where, where do you draw the line? You could spend an entire episode discussing this, you know, warging into another human being versus warging into an animal, I think are two completely different things, but people would say that they're, you know, you can say that they're exactly the same. I, I don't know, but uh, there, there's just, there's a lot to this chapter and, uh, you know, it, I, I think it ends pretty satisfactory, right? Yeah, factorly, yeah. Um, it, it does. I mean, essentially they are, let me pull this up. So Sam recites his, uh, little vow <clears throat> and, uh, and that's after the door asks, who are you? It says, then pass. Its lips opened wide and wider and wider still until nothing at all remained but a great gaping mouth and a ring of wrinkles. Sam stepped aside and waved Jojen through ahead of him. Summer followed, sniffing as he went, and then it was Bran's turn. Hodor ducked, but not low enough. The door's upper lip brushed softly against the top of Bran's head, and a drop of water fell on him and ran slowly down his nose. It was strangely warm and salty as a tear. Why do you suppose that is? That it's warm and salty as if it were a tear? I think you're led to believe that there is something that is real, um, that, the, you know, these werewoods, these faces are in fact, in, they, they have some sort of human aspect to them, you know, that, or, in, or at least in the sense of, you know, if, if it's a replicating what you would normally see on somebody's face, then if there's a magical element to this then there has to be there, there has to be something that's actually real about them right yeah well and i mean you're in this place on the wall that is so cold and this tree has been here for thousands of years but is still alive in the way that i mean it responds to touch and feel and it asks you questions about yourself but it also is is this has this life force that means that it's actually moist you know li- moist with life i guess is the only way to describe it that that this the inside of this tree's mouth uh or this gate is it's so funny to juxtapose calling it a gate when it's a living breathing organism uh of of sorts um but that that's just kind of really ups the game ups the ante in terms of how to describe these facets that have been here for for so long that they can still be um moist with life i i don't think we're gonna top that um but let's go to owns let's go to owns have you given uh you haven't given have you got your owns micah i can now ask you while looking directly into your face (laughs) and tell if you are lying uh I, i do have my owns um for the for the John chapter, I'm going to give my own uh, to Maester Eamon ah. for his clever plan of the Straw Sentinels and uh, best plan. If it in any way helped to deplete the amount of resources that the Thens and the Wildlings had, because they spared a few extra arrows on them, then I think it was well worth it. Uh, I I agree. I agree. That would uh, that would have been my own, but I'm not uh, not one to double up on on existing owns. I'm going to give my own to young and old Henley. 
these are two men that are caught in the fray of battle. Um, but young Henley, who is well past 50, and old Henley, who is well past 70, I believe both meet their maker uh, in this battle, if I'm not mistaken. But just the colloquialisms, the naming scheme that John and the men of the Night's Watch have for each other never ceases to amuse me. Um, so old Henley, old Henley and young Henley having to live with the fact that there's another Henley at the wall, even when there's only 20 men left, you got to deal with another Henley, um, is just, is just funny to me. So that, that gets my own, but of course, moving on to, uh, the brand chapter, I'm going to, I really want, uh, to give this own first because that way it's not a double, but, um, I'm going to give my own to the the magic behind the the gate the the black the black gate um whatever it is it's just there's nothing like it there's been nothing like it so far I think in the in in the in the in the books and that's something that I want to see more of so mm-hmm. how about you I think I'm just going to give my own mentioned it earlier to Mira yeah for scaling the wall I yeah mean, if you're able to do that with with really out any sort of equipment outside of just climbing up the steps that are there. Yeah. You're right. I mean they're ba- they're barely steps anymore. They've melted and frozen, melted and froze for centuries. So that's that's easily it's very easy owned to give because she did in fact own them. So I know uh a number of listeners sent in their owns uh for these two chapters. Yeah, um, we really do thank uh everybody who's writing in and reading along with us in our on season. Um, and gee, do you want to do Facebook or Twitter first, Micah? Twitter. Okay. Let's go over to the Twitter mailbag of owns in five, four, three, two, one at AKA Cthulhu on Twitter says killing fucking thens cough, cough. Excuse me. I don't know where that came from (laughs) as the own for the John chapter. Mm hmm. The Lady Ash tweeted in, Own to my bros in black. I love the bits of dark humor we get with them. Small council member Simon Amundsen wrote in, Own to the great fortress that is the wall. Quote, The wall defends itself. And this is the best brand of the series so far. The Night Fort is one of the coolest places seen. So scary. Such rich history. And that gate owns. I agree, Simon. Jordan D. Mertens own to John Seven goes to Ned Stark for taking Rob atop the towers of Winterfell to shout across the yard. Hashtag the John remembers. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, not a good leader if uh, your men can't hear your commands. Your what is it? Your voice box is as important as your sword arm, or your a good good lung. I don't know if voice box was. Yeah, a word. it wasn't voice box. It was your lung. Um, two parts rye writes in on Twitter. Hob owned Gordon Ramsay's kitchen nightmares formula. <laughs> Simple, rustic, mm-hmm. uh, easy, easy, easy. And uh, also, so did the Rat King, with the exception of his choice of meats. Hashtag not how you have a guest for dinner. Well, thanks for uh, sending those in on Twitter. Over on Facebook, Ari Paul Carlson. My John Own goes to Own Molly for finally shutting up Big Boyle's annoying arse complaints with an arrow right through his leg. Hashtag, which may be the longest one I've ever seen, that will stop him bitching about his boil. Hashtag, 
Gould Molly. Go old Molly. Oh, go old Molly. Same thing. Hashtag bitching boil. Oh, and his brand own goes to the first honorable mention of the Knights King, as well as all the fuzz about Cold Hand's elk. Riz Palazzolo writes in, my own for the John chapter goes to the Brothers of the Night's Watch, all the old, the crippled, the infirmed, and green boys that were all that was left to hold Castle Black. And hold it, they did. And my own for the brand chapter goes to Cold Hands for being one of the most mysterious characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, for once again being mentioned and leaving us wanting more. Yeah, he certainly is. And of course, uh, George R. R. Martin, There's there's been a lot of speculation about who Cold Hands is. Is he Benjamin Stark? Uh, George R. R. Martin finally shot that down. So that, I think, even heightens the... Yeah, the mystique about him. Because if you if you were... I don't know why he even said that. You know, <laughs> let, let people think what they think. But, you know, <laughs> now it's so just, who is this guy? Yeah, so, who is it? Um, Maybe but, he's a Bolton or a Car Stark. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also got a message from our good friend uh, Kat Taylor, who said, "You know, related to this uh, this John chapter, yeah. just want you guys to know that in Prague they use fake ravens to scare off pigeons, and every time I see one, I think of Game of Owns or Game of Thrones. So uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool, Kat. Thank you for writing us. It's cool that you're in Prague." Uh, and also what they have to do to get rid of uh, pigeons over there. I know mm-hmm. pigeons are considered by many to be a pest. I find them adorable. You can uh, just tell your people in Prague to send all the pigeons my way. Thank yeah. you. I thought they used to use owls, but I guess uh, ravens work just as well. well. Fake ravens, too, can stand guard for a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, you know there are many different ways that uh, you can send in your owns to us. We mentioned two of them. Twitter, just tweet at us at Game of Owns or uh, scroll upon our wall on Facebook, facebook.com slash Game of Owns. Or you can uh, send us an email, contact at Game of Owns.com. And then, of course, are we actually about to do this, Micah? After so many episodes and weeks of promising, we're going to go over to our iTunes channel. And we've been mentioning we're going to do this uh, previously, but there have been a number of reviews. iTunes is a great opportunity for new listeners who are unfamiliar with the show to learn about the show based on your rate and reviewing of our show. Um, So we've had some great reviews over the last couple weeks. We wanted to give appropriate time to read them. And the first one is quite short and sweet from Synthesize. Uh, the title of the review is Makes Work Bearable. And they say, Hours of listening pleasure that makes cubicle work bearable is our show. Well, we appreciate that uh, synthesize. Maybe maybe their name is Cynthia, possibly. Possibly. I don't know. Rosenharten. Oh, sorry, just Rose Harton. Mm-hmm. I made it more German than it needed to be. Uh, a <laughs> little bit more German. Left their review saying, perfect podcast. Uh, this is the perfect podcast. I'm a big fan of both the books, the show, and now this podcast. The hosts are also great and funny, and the show is entertaining and provides a great outlet for my inner Game of Thrones nerd. So nice to be able to relate to the hosts and their love of the series. And I just truly love this podcast. It makes me happy and has me laughing quietly at work often and just... Thank you guys so much for this show. You're welcome, Rose Harden, and thank you for the review. I think that one, I personally am going to go upvote so that more people see it. Uh, And our last review here for the evening comes from Eldredo, and they say, the title being, All Men and Women Must Listen, 
A man, oh great, in the third person, very Jack and Hagar of you. A man does not fully enjoy Game of Owns without the pleasure of listening to this trio of entertainers. The format of this show is excellent. Each host brings a dis- different perspective on the story of A Song of Ice and Fire. During the show season, they are my water cooler talk about the previous Sunday's episode. During the off season, they explore in depth into the books. What more could you ask for? The cherry on top? The fan involvement, giving one's owns, has made their social experiment like no other experience. Keep it up, guys, and sometimes gals, and come back to Chicago. I missed the season finale with you guys. Mm. Oh, well, Eldredo, uh, this message is directly to you. We are currently in Chicago, but yes. regrettably will not be at the time of your listening to this. Yes, um, I am here for work, and then, of course... A uh, good segue is that uh, we are headed to Orlando, Florida later on this week. Uh, we mentioned at the top of the show, Zach is on his way there right now. Uh, we are going to be live at GeekyCon on Friday, August. On fr- <laughs> You know what it is? We, we changed the date, so now I'm all screwed up. <laughs> it was August 1st. Right. On Friday, July 31st. Harry Potter's birthday. Oh, look at that. And uh, we will be uh, doing our live show at 2 p.m. on the main stage at the Orange County Convention Center. Uh, Prior to that, we're actually going to be doing a a cool Westeros 101 class Mm -hmm. where uh, we'll be really exposing new fans to the series and uh, having a lot of fun teaching them exactly why they should get into the series on television or the books or both. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that it'll be really uh, interesting to sit down and talk with people who maybe aren't as familiar mm-hmm. uh, uh, with this series. And then, of course, at two o'clock, uh, we're going to be joined by David J. Peterson, yes. who uh, best known, I think, for uh, his invention of the Dothraki language, amongst others. Yeah, Valyrian. Namely, mm-hmm. and uh, and others from different series. Yeah, really cool guy. Really looking forward to uh, doing a show with him. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you're in the Orlando area, definitely come by. We know uh, a few of you at least who have who have sent us messages uh, on Twitter and Facebook that you will be there. So we look forward to uh, meeting all of you in person. Yeah, definitely. If you're looking at uh, what else is going on that weekend, definitely go check out uh, the website GeekyCon. Dot com. And uh, I think that uh, really wraps it up. We will return to our uh, regularly scheduled programming after the convention, uh, where we'll uh, jump into the next two chapters, which are Daenerys and... Put me on the spot here. Tyrion. So <laughs> uh, there you have it. Uh, we'll be back with Tyrion in not so long a period of time. And I know people yeah. really enjoy his chapters and... We'll catch up with Danny. We haven't seen her since uh, before season uh, season five. So uh, a lot to get to. Obviously, these were two pretty hefty chapters, but I think that's going to be a trend we're going to continue to see throughout the rest of this book. Absolutely. The book's on fire, and so are we. Thank you for listening to this episode of Game of Bones, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you in Orlando. In the meantime, sleep tight. Don't let the rats cook come and get you. Or that thing that comes in the night. She said bite.